The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag BigBeacon. This first segment of, Big, segment of Big Beacon Radio is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today, I, I feel blessed and uh, excited to be joined by Kurt Patterson from James Madison Engineering uh, in Virginia. Welcome to the show, Kurt. Good to be here, Dave. Well, uh, and... Um, Kurt, uh, you've um, you've been uh, head of the Department of Engineering at James Madison for a time, and before that, you were involved in Engineers Without Borders USA for for a number of years and other social entrepreneurship activities, and and you held faculty and administrative positions uh, during a twenty year tenure at Michigan Tech at Houghton, um, and probably this time of year you're glad to be down in Virginia. <laughs> but let's go back in the time machine. Uh, what what early experiences in your life put you on your current path? Well, I, you know, it may sound cliche, but I have to I have to give a lot of credit to my parents. Um, I'd say, looking back, they they gave my siblings and I a generous amount of freedom, and and that translated certainly for for me in exploring you know our our neighborhood, and at that point, it was really my world. Um, uh, pretty continuously, and, and I think that led to, uh, you know, a curiosity of, of, um, of that space, and, and I could see with time that, you know, that world got bigger and bigger. Um, but then I, you know, I have to say I, I was really lucky as, as a kid in Iowa, uh, went to fantastic public schools, and, and reflecting back, I'd, I'd say almost every year I had very positive experiences in, in the school system and extremely supportive teachers um, that, you know, they, they, they did the things that I, I think now as a parent, I, I hope uh, are, are being afforded my daughters, which is, uh, you know, just somehow unleashing this, this love of learning. And, um, and that's a different kind of exploration, right? You begin to understand 
um, that, that books and education can, can allow you to, you know, see the world and, and grow your world. Um, and that, you know, for me, it worked out really nicely. It, it persisted um, through those K through 12 years and then into college. Um, and then I would probably leap forward a few years to, to my graduate days. I, I got really fortunate. It was, it was a bit serendipitous, but uh, w- kind of found my place in grad school uh, with some fantastic mentors. And I think, you know, the, the, the license they gave me and I, I think many of my, my peers in that program were, you know, uh, one, to explore and, and to kind of own and claim your, your research. Um, and that, you know, that opened up a, a different way of, of seeing the world, I think, for me. Yeah, so that's, uh, and, and and sometimes, and cliches are, cliches because oftentimes they contain contain truth and and I guess I'm I'm also curious you know what um, you're trained as an engineer what why engineering <laughs> well that's a that's a good question I you know I, I've shared this um, conversation with with more than a few prospective students over the years sure. it seems like these days they bring uh, greater clarity than I remember for myself back in the day when I was uh, 17 or 18 I, I I have to say, I, I sort of stumbled into it. I was a first-generation college uh, kid mm-hmm. in my family, um, but for many years, the narrative was that math and science came easily to me, and therefore, uh, if you go to college, you should check out engineering. Um, I got a little, little lucky in that my brother is two years older, and he had opted into an engineering program as well. So I started to have a, a little bit better sense as to what that was. But I don't think I truly understood that until um, you know, I was into an undergraduate engineering program myself. Um, and it seemed like, you know, in general, it was, it was a pretty good use of, of my talents. I think somewhere along the way I realized I had lost, um, you know, passion of mine through the K-12 through years, which was more on the artistic side. Um, and so began to to wonder how you might be able to integrate some of those um, uh, areas to to excel as well into the engineering uh, work that I was beginning to engage in. Yeah, how'd you uh, how'd you find your art? How'd you get your art mojo back? Well, you know, the way that it began to express for me was was through primarily through photography. Hmm. Um, what what has uh, and, and it started to become um, a bit of a, a useful tool in some ways, and that um, the longer I, I uh, remained engaged in in engineering higher ed, uh, st- started to um, find myself involved in opportunities that led far afield from campus, and and that and that need and that ability to express stories. Um, became more and more important, and photography was often one of those ways that you could try to bridge that need uh, to help others understand what the experience was about. Nice, and and then I guess uh, you know, our, oftentimes our second question is around unleashing, and a whole new engineer, Mark Somerville, and I talk about the sense of unleashing that comes from um, being trusted either by yourself or some a particular other, and then having the courage to do something you might not have otherwise done, doing it, um, maybe failing at it, and then maybe succeeding at it, and then having a genuine um, 
autonomous uh, learning experience uh, through it. So, um, who are the who's or what are the what's um, in in uh, if any that that come to mind um, in which you you felt unleashed uh, to do something courageous that you might not have otherwise done? It doesn't need to be courage with a capital C or or anything. You know, just um, in what ways have you felt unleashed? Well, some of those same experiences as as a yeah. kid were, were certainly influential. You know, again, at the time, you don't necessarily think of them in that way. But looking back, I can see that they they probably were influential. Whether it be you know that freedom that parents can give their kids um, to explore, and I'm talking about doing childish things like running around the woods, as an example, mm. um, begins to you know, with with probably the right um, series of outcomes, can be a way to embolden um, you know you as as a youngster. But then, more specifically to your question, you know, there certainly are some some specific um, we'll call them mentors, and and they might not have known it at the moment. And sometimes that mentoring can be a one-off exchange, but that wisdom that can be shared from from people along the ways can be um, quite influential and. And some of them are are through people you never meet. You know, the, there are sometimes uh, those mentors that arrive through through books. Or uh, in in my case, for for many years when I was a, a teenager, the the first Cosmos series was was on the air um, with Carl Sagan. And mm. and the interesting point about that was it was the first time I had seen a scientist uh, speak with such eloquence and and then bring in this sense of of history and wonder, um, to me that that was revolutionary. I, I hadn't I hadn't seen uh, that sort of presentation before, and and it really gave me pause in a in a, in a powerful way to think about um, the connections between the, the technical and and the human element. Um, I think that might have laid some of the early thoughts in in my head about how you can begin to bridge, or, or what is the, the greater good, if you will, of, of math and science, uh, because it wasn't so cleanly uh, articulated as far as I can recall in school, and that was an interesting example. Um, and, then, and then later, you know, I think one of these sort of serendipitous moments was my own sort of personal quest about finding what I wanted to do in engineering, and it was near the end of my undergraduate studies in mechanical engineering where I realized this wasn't necessarily the best fit. And it was one of those moments where I had happened to have a conversation with a, a graduate student at the time who had gotten an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering and then stepped out into an environmental engineering graduate program, and he recommended I go talk to a professor uh, in that program. That moment and that recommendation ended up being absolutely life-changing, um, and because the subsequent con- conversation with the, with the professor um, at that point, you know, sort of reaffirmed that that subject matter was where I was going to find my passion. Yeah, it's interesting how many um, times these moments can be, like you say, moments in passing. Uh, if you mentioned it, probably to the graduate student. You know now how many ever years hence uh, mm-hmm. probably won't remember it, but that that it was life changing, yeah, changing absolutely. for you. Yeah, and it's, it's it's so interesting how how often 
um, that occurs. Let, let's uh, turn to to your current role, and and you were a faculty member for I think about twenty years at Michigan Tech, and about four years ago, if I've got my facts right, you took the headship at uh, James Madison, and I'm just curious what attracted you to uh, that program and to the position. Yeah, it was it was one of those things where um, I was not looking. I, I was I was doing some immensely enjoyable. Uh, work at Michigan Tech. I had great colleagues and, and great students um, and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. What had happened within a short order was um, a couple people mentioned that, that GMU was looking for a new engineering head and that everything they knew about the program sounded a lot like what I had been, I guess, known to, to occasionally mention in, um, in meetings nationally and in other venues um, that there was an opportunity to reimagine engineering education. And, and the faculty uh, you know, that had proposed the program at JMU and then, and then done the hard work of, of launching it um, had put something really interesting together. And so as I, as I took a, a deeper look into it, I, I thought it seemed like a, a really masterful job of trying to combine you know, many of the many of the the requests by a whole host of stakeholders on higher ed these days, um, and I was really intrigued. So I, I applied, uh, and you know those things usually um, are always a, a low probability outcome, so don't think much about it, and it worked out. Um, Marvelously, I've really enjoyed my time at JMU. It's a it's a great group of faculty and students here that are together to try to do um, you know some of this serious uh, but joyful work of of uh, reimagining what undergraduate engineering education can look like. Yeah, I think the technical term for low probability coaching term is a uh, crapshoot. But uh, <laughs> yep. but um, so but uh, so but you. you you you, know, you came up, uh, you rolled a seven, and so you're there. And so one of the nice things about this show is getting to learn uh, about relatively unheralded, cool programs like mm-hmm. like James Madison. And and um, and so what? In, uh, and you weren't an outsider all that long ago. So um, maybe you still have some remaining objectivity. What distinguishes uh, James Madison, say, from the average the average bear engineering program? Yeah, certainly a, a few things. It's uh, a singular program, a Bachelor of Science in Engineering, and and through that, uh, a good deal of I, I kind of consider it, you know, having thought through what are the key ingredients these days that can that can be mixed in some really powerful ways. Um, and so, you know, the program when it was um, being thought through. Uh, to put it in context, the Engineer of 2020 report had just been released, and that document was was quite influential in terms of yep. uh, thinking about this modern, broad set of of uh, skills and mindsets that uh, engineer of the 21st century would need. And I think a dutiful a- attempt to try to um, bring that voice of of industry and and community and society to that conversation around what does 
such an engineering program look like? And so through that, there's really a few key elements that are kind of these core ingredients. One is that the program is design-based. Um, and, and certainly at the heart of that, in terms of the execution, um, there's design projects throughout the curriculum. It starts the first semester and, and continues throughout four years. That platform of how that it's offered is, is a project-based learning profile, but the design positioning affords the projects to be more open-ended. And so where, where possible, and we tend to scaffold this throughout the four years, make it more open-ended over the four years, make things less structured, um, is to start at the beginning, so to speak. Try to engage our students in problem-finding then framing the problems, then solving the problem, then moving beyond that to actually giving many of the solutions physical form through prototyping. Mm -hmm. And then because most of the projects are authentic with real partners, then the delivery of the project to, to the, the partner or the customer or the client. Um, and so the design-based platform is, is throughout. And then because of the project nature, and then two uh, required classes, a good deal of project management exposure for our students. Yep. And then the nature of, of the way we've intentionally recruited to this singular engineering program is amongst the 15 faculty colleagues I have, we have a dozen different engineering disciplines represented. And so there's an intentionality around the interdisciplinary nature of the program. Um, and many of the classes have sort of been hybridized uh, to bring together subjects, a number of the electives are truly multidisciplinary, that is engineering plus non-engineering uh, colleagues and students across campus. And so it's, it's those things that in the right combination uh, for a particular student can result in a very different um, sort of professional pathway. And uh, a recent alumni analysis suggests just that is happening for the alum. Yeah, um now, how are how are the uh, how are your graduates received, and how do they, what do they tell you out in the world, when about well, their education when when you hear from them? Yeah, the early evidence is is extremely positive. I mean, so much so that I, as I went out on a bit of a tour um, after my first year here to uh, supervisors of some of our alum, I started to hear a, a similar refrain, which is what I was trying to get at, you know, with the, the excitement of sort of a startup program is to begin to understand what is some of the outcomes of, of yep. what are some of the outcomes. And, and so to have these conversations, I was trying to learn um, exactly the answer to your question. What many of these employers uh, started sharing in, in, in similar language was what we're seeing from your alum is that they are much more project ready than the graduates that we typically get from other programs. And as I began to reflect on that and sort of ask follow-up questions, you know, it makes sense because our students are working on so many projects, but I think what those employers were, were getting at is the ability of our graduates to step into a real engineering team upon arrival and feel comfortable and begin to make contributions and not get hung up on the ambiguity or the uncertainty, or the, the lack of theory on so much, you know, real engineering work. Um, and I, I think that has tremendous value for so many employers, particularly probably as the, as the, uh, as the employers are, are smaller, there's simply less time to, um, 
to train and and mentor um, from day one. And, and so I think they, in particular, appreciate a graduate who can contribute uh, shortly upon arrival. No, that's great. And and um, yeah, you're just talking now reminded me of my time in general engineering at Illinois and and uh, being involved for about 20 years in in senior design and and unfortunately we were unable to have the the same kind of throughout the curriculum um, kind of design but the the experience and the discontinuity between sort of analysis 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 then then design and the and what you just said this kind of the ambiguity that um, you actually are fairly data poor, but you're story rich, and yeah. and that's yeah. what it is. And and you better be able to make sense of those stories and and um, and and reason about those stories. Use you know and uh, connect those to, okay, now what? Now what do we what do we do? And you still have to solve the problem, even if you can't plug into uh, Maxwell's equations or the Navier-Stokes equations. Right. Comment. Yeah, I mean, our students. I am thinking about my own experiences. I had a fairly typical one-semester capstone. Yep. Our, our first-year students um, in the first semester have a, a two-month-long project. Their second semester, they have a semester-long project. Our sophomores have a year-long project. And then our capstone at JMU is actually a two-year-long project. Yep. It starts at the beginning of the junior year and, um, and then goes through various phases uh, for four semesters. And and that kind of platform, I think, can you know, it's it's a it's an excellent training platform around the project orientation of engineering work. Yeah, great stuff. And and I, I think we need to take a little bit of a break. And I want to come back after the break. And there's still, uh, and we had a conversation the other uh, day in a meeting we were both in about this kind of nagging feeling that a lot of people have that even even when progress like yours has been made, that there's still there's still fur- that we can go further, and I want to I want to dig into what that feeling's about. How about okay. that? Sounds good. Yeah. So um, this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest Kurt Patterson. Stay stay with us, and in the next segment, we're going to talk about that nagging feeling that things can be better. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, 
please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Second segment is sponsored by Three Joy Associates Incorporated. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your organization. Also, you can ask the guest questions or make comments at hashtag Big Beacon on Twitter. Um, and actually, the second segment is also sponsored by the book that is transforming higher education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're back with uh, Kurt Patterson, from uh, head of uh, Department of Engineering at James Madison University in Virginia. And, and Kurt, we were kind of talking about um, JMU and the ways in which it's distinctive. And, and you and I have been in conversation for a while that, about this uh, nagging feeling that things can be different and, and um, better. It's, you know, arguably JMU is ahead of the pack on a number of dimensions, um, but you're involved in a serious change initiative to help your faculty and students go further. Um, what's your intuition about the nagging feelings and the nagging feeling and how things can be different? Well, let me uh, position my comments from maybe two perspectives here. One would be focused on the students. I'll just share a couple of things that um, recently we've been chatting about at uh, in our engineering program at JMU. For the students, for 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 them, I have been thinking a lot about the the I, I call it the permission culture. That um, seems to dominate our school uh, schooling and school systems, um, which is maybe best illustrated by sort of the dominant reaction of of students as they come into a classroom, which is to sit down uh, in in rows of chairs and and listen and and wait to be called on and so forth. Yeah. That simply doesn't fly um, for our engineering program, nor I think is it is a good experience to continue through higher ed prior to going out into some form uh, of the work world. So it's, it's, it's thinking about how to, how to upend that expectation that as a student, I have to wait for permission to do something, to do something good, to do something amazing. Um, and, and, as long as that permission mindset is there, I think it effectively holds our students back. It seems like such a such a great disservice to these young people as as they're often in this extremely vital time of their lives to to be sitting down and waiting their turn. Um, I think we we simply not only need to do better, but I'm beginning to get some sense that more and more students are hoping that there is that, uh, that opportunity, that program, that university they can go to to, uh, f- frankly, realize some of their dreams while they're yeah, learning. Actually, yeah, actually, so um, Sheila Tobias, uh, uh, who wrote about math anxiety many years ago and is an innovator in her own right, uh, told a nice story on the show a while back about a young woman who, kind of couldn't stick with uh, science education because she said her OQ, 
wasn't high enough. What's OQ obedience quotient? <laughs> so it's a, so like it's it. the flip side. So as opposed to asking permission, that being obedient to authority is sort of mm-hmm. the norm. And and in the flip, the the poll the poll that where the tension there is between that and either freedom or courage to do something on your own. And and so how do we? And it, and and I think it's you know it it's easy to think of say that freedom. As a solution, and then there are times when we do need to shut up, shut down, shut up, and listen. Absolutely. Sit down and listen. And so it's not like we're eliminating that. And oftentimes, faculty here, when you say you're going to go towards that other pole, they they hear that yep. oh well, they're going to have chaos and there's going to be anarchy in the classroom, and the kids aren't actually going to learn anything in the syllabus. But that's not actually what we're talking about, is it? No, not at all. I I, I think you know to maybe play off of. Uh, Dr. Tobias, there's there's probably something a bit like a permission intelligence that we you know really hope to develop in our students. There are there are absolutely times where the smart thing to do is is make sure you get permission, so to speak. But there are plenty of times when in that sort of self activism that that agency um, needs to similarly flow effortlessly out of our students. Uh, yeah. The default. Though is the switch is tuned to, um, it's it's a permission based world, and um, I, I think we can do better. There are, there are there are ways to help our students see that that there are times where permission is absolutely the right course of action, and then likewise there are times where the opportunity is yours to take and and to do something with, um, and and that's a that's a cultural shift uh, for the students and. Um, you know, we're learning that that has to happen really day one, um, and uh, and and it is a, a continuous sort of thing. It has to has to be mapped out with with everything that the, the students are experiencing, at least within the engineering program. It's often one of the challenges um, is that a, a program is only one part of a of a larger culture at the institution. Um, but uh, but progress can be made. I, I think we're beginning to see some of those differences in our students after a few years of of sort of focused effort on that. Uh, Actually, so yeah, and you had another perspective, and I want to yeah, query that before we leave this one. I, I it seems to me the kids today come many that do maybe not all, but a, a large number, as I think you were suggesting, come, and they want they desperately want college to be different than high school. Mm-hmm. Right, in this in this obedience permi- permission access, I think specifically, and they come and they go to class for about a week and they say, "Up, oh, high school plus plus." Yep. And and they tu- and they tune out and they basically say, "Well, okay, I know how to play this, and there's nothing there's nothing really here for me, but I'll I'll punch I'll punch my ticket and I'll hope and uh, if I'm in engineering, I'll I'll go I'll go get a good paying job. If I'm in liberal arts, I'll go become a barista." Yeah. Yeah, and engineering programs have extra challenges with the way many of them are structured with that first year being mostly um, coursework in in programs that are supporting engineering yep. and and they have their own ways of doing things. So I, I think certainly un, uh, you know double underscore that this clearly suggests that the engineering programs have to figure out ways to have continuous contact with their students starting from day one. Yep. 
And you had a second, you had a second yeah. perspective that you wanted to address yeah, to that the question. The second perspective is focused on the faculty. And I, I think it's at this interplay of independence and interdependence. And so much of, of higher ed uh, rewards and uh, champions the independence of its faculty. In fact, mm-hmm. I, when you talk to most faculty, it's, it's one of the attractive features of, of an academic career. But particularly when we shift our focus to education, um, there is so much to be gained through interdependence uh, of the, the faculty and staff. And it sets in motion then thinking about how do we uh, measure assess outcomes, uh, reward good efforts there? How do we encourage um, additional rich collaboration amongst the faculty um, in the education arena? And and that comes with its own challenges. But it seems to me that uh, one of the unfortunate outcomes of uh, independent-oriented uh, culture is, is that there are fewer moments where... Um, where it's clearly uh, sort of recognized and, and celebrated that together we can craft something much better than each of us sort of working individually and sort of passing uh, the students on to the next as, as our turn is over. Um, and that requires, again, some serious cultural shifts um, in the way that business is often done. Yeah, and... And um, and this show and this shows up in a number of ways. So sometimes in doing some of the faculty training um, about change and so forth, you do you do work around teamwork and requests and commitments, and it sort of land oftentimes lands on. Uh, it's like you're using words that are being spoken in a foreign language, or or people will. I, I think maybe, or, or or it's in a language that you know. So you say, yes, I commit to doing that, and it's the the good independent faculty member committed to their research above all else that can't mm-hmm. ignore the department head's uh, request uh, that he's already committed to, he or she's already committed to, and so we, uh, it's a serious, it's a serious problem if we're talking about making the kinds of reforms that we're talking about. Comment. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, the, the the graduates of our programs are in many ways these great collaborative efforts. And, yep. and to go back to this nagging feeling, it just seems like uh, we could do something better in terms of what that graduate is like, what it what the graduate's capable of, um, if. If the system uh, was one that positioned more of our efforts to how do we best collaborate in that goal? It's actually so. I'm just uh, reflecting on uh, some of my work right now is actually not in engineering, um, doing work with a, a management consulting firm in South America, and it's it's actually. It's so great to work on these concepts with a group of uh, young, energetic consultants in a project because they actually make and 
keep their they they make requests they keep they make commitments they keep them and and stuff gets done and uh and it's such a breath of fresh air compared to almost any experience even working in enlightened en- engineering education spaces or education spaces and it just seems like um and so I, I, as you said i think we're 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 talking about um some things that are deeply cultural here and ed shine always warns us when people want to go off and change culture so um and a whole new engineer basically if if the book had a kind of a singular point it was that things need to be different both culturally and emotionally mm-hmm. um and that but yet we spend so much of our time twiddling the knobs of some of the artifacts of the culture, uh, in particular content curriculum and pedagogy. So, what do what do we do? Well, you know, I I actually love the two things that you picked. Uh, if you if you were only allowed to pick two things, it's that's a great short list. So, um, how do we how do we um, how do we make progress on the nagging feeling with those two things? Well, I, I think certainly, uh, and particularly, you know, as as groups of engineers, uh, we might be be quick to. Um, to play to our strengths, so to speak, you know, and all those things you, you mentioned, the curriculum and pedagogy, in some ways, those are means to, to be efficient or yeah. effective. And, yeah. and as engineers, I, and it gives us a comforting feeling. But I think what is often lost because it is less comfortable is, uh, is that we're dealing with people. And, and there are... Education is one of those services, if you will, that um, doesn't respond well, I, I think, to efficiency mindsets. Because you're, at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're dealing with one person at a time. And so, and whether it be um, you know, the faculty coming together and working with each other, whether it be the, the faculty instructor with a class of students, um, those are at the you know at, in the final analysis these sort of one to one relationships are happening and um, and frankly, I think those are those are more complicated notions to think through and, and to plan for and um, but I think it's at the heart of of both the nagging feeling and and the some of the the rich solutions that you do come across that we've kind of moved from you know, I think last decade there was a lot of conversation about institutions becoming more student-centered, but to me that doesn't sound like it goes far enough. That this more modern position has to be relationship-centric. That these transactions are happening between two individuals, even if it's an instructor in a room full of of students. Each one of those students is engaged in a different way. And so somehow to get our heads around this sort of relationship-based nature of of education, I I think at least begins to help you think through um, so many of these these difficult challenges that are are inherent in, in higher ed these days. Yeah, I really like the way you just... uh said that and and there is a sense and 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 to be clear many of the 
content curriculum pedagogy innovations that are out there are actually designed in a certain way to bring about, in, in part, some sort of change in relationship. I always think it's a bit of a dodge when we don't actually talk about the true end that we're after. And, and, and so the emphasis ends up being on the artifact and sort of the right way of, um, uh, you know, whatever it is, project-based learning, active mm-hmm. learning, experiential learning, X, X, I call them X learning. They all, you know, so, I, and, and everyone's got kind of a formula in the six steps and, but okay, but at, at, as you say, at the end of the day, we're talking about human beings and fundamentally about their interaction. And is anyone, is, are people actually listening? Are they actually communicating? Are they talking at, or are they talking to, or are they, um, are they under, are people understanding one another? And, um, do we actually have kind of a we we there there are efficiency issues here. I mean, so after you know, so somehow, you know, the wrap on on studio based kinds of um, programs is that they don't scale, and I think that's mm-hmm. a fair fair criticism. Mm-hmm. But that also is assuming that the only worker in the room is the professor. That's right. And, and and so it's not just you know it's sort of so what role does do students have in their own learning and the learning of their colleagues and their and and how does it become driven by a different kind of structure different kind of interaction um, and a different culture and expectation so I, th- I think it's a bigger it's a bigger kettle of fish than any of these X learnings um, really allow for your thoughts yeah without a doubt I in it, in it. Those sort of changes will require courage. Uh, where, where most of us in, in the in the classroom have gone through an experience that is quite a bit different than what you just mentioned, and and so it, it uh, the, to contemplate uh, changing that typical sort of power uh, structure, if you will, in the education uh, arrangement. Um, can take a great deal of of humility and um, and a good dose of of courage because it's often um, something that runs counter to our own experiences. Um, but I think there is you know, potential for very rich upside um, to to try to reimagine the sort of the, the modern roles or the modern possibilities. For what does it mean to be a student? What does it mean to be a professor? Um, and how can, uh, with these new ways of, of learning, um, how can we better position that talent uh, in a different in a different relationship than it has been in the past? Beautiful. Let's let's take another break, and I, I want to continue on this point for just a w- little while longer. This is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Kurt Patterson from James Madison Engineering, and uh, in the next segment, we're gonna we're gonna push on this a little bit a little bit further. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach 
with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's Educational Innovators Working Group, EIWG. Join us for monthly meetings, action-oriented learning action teams, and help create change that sticks at your school. Go to bigbeacon.org and sign up as an advocate, or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And so we're we're back with Kurt Patterson from James Madison. We've been, um, been talking about... Um, this kind of nagging feeling about that things can can be different and and um, better and and kind of moving from student um, centered individualistic uh, kinds of uh, learning environments to um, faculty that work together to um, um, be more relationship driven and okay so and you're working pretty hard at. James Madison to take what is already a pretty cool program and take it further. Um, suppose you're just wildly successful, say over the actually say over the next five years, maybe even by 2020. Yeah, actually, I'm going to put out a sticker, uh, a little button that says uh, "Engineer in 20 of 2020 in 2020 or bust or something like that." But um, so, how, you know, how do we uh, how do we actually get the engineer of 2020 to show up sometime now versus uh, uh, 2,120. Um, suppose you're wildly successful. Um, what's the future look like? Um, in, in what ways will the experience of, say, engineering education at James Madison be different if, if some of these, if, we're, if you're able to make, say, um, serious dent in some of these uh, difficult issues? Yeah, the way I've been thinking about things like that these days is, is Sort of these circles of influence, and it and it does, um, it, you know, it, it plays nicely with with certainly the the typical faculty um, career structure and and reward structure, but then also more importantly, to also shift the same framework to the students. And so, sort of three rings that I, I would hope, you know, a few years from now, our students would just simply understand coming in that they were going to have influence over. One is, of course, themselves. They're going to need to learn. They're going to need to be competent engineers. And, and sure, at the core of that's going to be continued technical analysis, excellence, but, but so much more than that. Um, beyond themselves, though, I, I, I want every member of our engineering program to understand that they have 
the chance to have a positive influence over our organization and to be contributing members to this rich culture of engineering. Um, and then beyond the organization is, uh, say, the world, right? And, and that to be these active agents in using engineering as, as an instrument of good in the world is, again, not just something that we talk about that we would expect out of everybody who is part of Madison Engineering to come in knowing that um, we expect that and, um, and that it's fully possible for them. Um, and so that's, you know, those sort of circles of influence to me, I, I these days uh, just talk about it as, as truly embracing the joys of engineering, that there's this, it's a wonderful time to be an engineer, and there are some fantastic things that can come through that with you as this active uh, agent in, in these opportunities that uh, programs like ours and others around the country are affording uh, both their students and staff these days. Yeah, and actually, the the last of those circles, the world circle, it seems to me, you know, you've had a, a, a long association with service learning kinds mm-hmm. of efforts, and, and I'm just wondering um, uh, what, um, you know, so that points to having, almost always having some larger purpose or aim in mind as, as you work on something, and sometimes... Um, yeah, this efficient to go back to the efficiency mindset. Engineers kind of efficiently analyze physics and 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 apply it to the world, but sort of the the larger purpose of these things is captured in and and it's not that it's bad that it's captured in an economic context because uh, economic contexts actually bring all bring um, can bring an awful lot of good into the world mm-hmm. again in a social sort of way. So social. Um, Social entrepreneurship has no um, uh, monopoly on social good in the world, but um, but I guess I'm wondering how your thinking has been influenced by your work in in um, uh, the the service learning context, DWB, Engineers mm-hmm. Without Borders, that sort of thing. How do, how does that help you think about that future, the future that we're talking this this future that we're talking about? I, I think it underscores that that most people need this this burning why. Um, you know, efficiency is great. It's a, it's a way that, as engineers, it's how we can get things done and, and make value through through that. But uh, you need something that's going to get you out of bed each day, and and I think that is it's often a personal answer, um, but it, it certainly is. You know, why are you an engineer? Why, and and what do you hope to to do through that? Uh, opportunity with your life, and uh, I think if we, you know, the, the importance of, of community engagement or service learning is is it that it clearly embodies that um, in often the, the project work that, and that that's a part of the experience. But I think more broadly, we we need to think in a similar sense for for much of our curriculum that without that question being answered, why. Um, it's um, it'll just result in, in in I think many of the ills that that we confront with engineering, whether it be um, low performance, um, low retention of our students, difficulty in recruiting students. Um, it, it it really runs the gamut. I, I think if we 
are attentive to, again, the sort of humanity of each of our students and, and faculty, that's an important question for, for each, not only to try to answer for themselves, but then have a platform to try to reach for a, a way to fulfill that, that personal uh, mission, if you will. Yeah, it's so interesting. And uh, actually, I had uh, Karen Hyman on the show last week, and I was reminded of when we uh, first invited students into the iFoundry program, she sent out a questionnaire, why do you want to be an engineer and why do you want to be an iFoundry? And one of the most the one of the best meetings that we ever had of the iFoundry Council of the 12 departments at Illinois that were sort of part of this project was when she presented these mini narratives of why they wanted to be engineers. And I think there was a broad realization around the table that we don't usually ask. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, so they, we, we assume that they're there for who knows what. But when, when you ask, you get these beautiful answers. And, and they're different answers. Different. Some students had the kind of EWB mindset of helping, mm-hmm. doing good in the world directly with their engineering. Some wanted to be the next great Illinois entrepreneur. Some mm-hmm. wanted to just create cool technology. But... Um, Actually, the answers are less important than the asking and the listening. Your That's thoughts. right. Yeah, and then and then simply having having the opportunity to to engage. I, I and that's I think what there are some you know number of programs now that that afford those opportunities uh, in so many different ways to their students, um, and, and that's absolutely what I think higher ed should be about. As you know, change is change is hard, and and uh, I wish we had. Uh, um, yeah, actually, I, I wish we had. I wish we had more time. I, you know, but, um, let's let's head in this direction. I, I, I um, one of the difficulties in this is the sense that you know faculty uh, believe that they own content curriculum and pedagogy, and yet that. Um, that's part of this permission obedience kind of access. Um, and and um, what roles uh, what roles are you finding that students can play? What roles can students uh, play that they haven't been able to play? Well, uh, again, this requires a little bit of, of courage to do so. But and, and I, I know that we are not the only engineering program uh, that has tried this, but we're not resting on our successes to date and, in fact, have embarked on a version 2.0 of, of what our learning experience could look like. Uh, we started this um, in earnest back in, in August with a, a two-day retreat and, and decided prior to that that if we're going to move forward with this, um, with the authenticity and, I think, the positive return that we could get from a major multi-year effort that we have to have students at the table with the faculty and staff. Um, and so for that uh, two-day meeting, um, we had an equal number of juniors and seniors at the, at the venue with, uh, yep. with our 20 faculty and staff, and then have had subsequent meetings in November and then uh, a few weeks ago uh, as yep. sort of interim checkups to see uh, the progress and activity of, of various working groups we put together, again, with blended uh, faculty and students around those topics. That's the start. 
Um, and, and really, I, I think to date, has given uh, a fresh voice, um, some fresh eyes around persistent challenges that uh, makes you realize, wow, why don't we do this more or why haven't we done nice. this uh, yeah. sooner? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful stuff, and I wish we had more. Wish we had more time, but just uh, briefly, um, uh, website or email address where people can find out more about uh, engineering at uh, James Madison. Yeah, certainly check us out at jmu.edu/engineering, and that's a good starting point. Great, Kurt. Thanks so much uh, for joining us, and and best wishes as you um, tackle uh, to. Uh, um, J- uh, James Madison Engineering 2.0. Thanks so much, Dave. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with special thanks to our guest, Kurt Patterson from James Madison. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.